this is Jen, and you're listening to Paradox, a Mage the Ascension podcast. These bite-sized episodes are designed to get you up to speed and comfortable with Mage the Ascension rules and concepts. We read the books so you don't have to, though we do recommend it. Without further ado, welcome to Paradox. Hello, and welcome to Paradox, a Mage the Ascension podcast. This is episode one, so you want to be a wizard. Today we'll be giving a brief overview of this podcast, of ourselves, and of Mage the Ascension, what it is and what we love about it. This podcast is designed to be a series of short episodes centered around rules, mechanics, or quick tips, punctuated by longer episodes where we can really dive into the esoterica and lore of this system, hopefully in a way that helps all of you love and enjoy Mage as much as we do. So before we get into it, a little bit about us. I'm Jen, and you can find me on most social media platforms as Achille Daniels, and I have far too many hobbies for the amount of spare time that I have. One of them is, of course, TTRPGs, and I have been playing Mage for many, many years. I am also a cast member for Dork Tales, where I play in a variety of streams, including a Victorian Age Mage Chronicle. With me, I have Kelly, the one who got me into all of this. Hi there, I'm Kelly Clark. I'm the host of Dork Tales, an actual play podcast that covers everything from Dungeons & Dragons to, of course, Mage the Ascension. I'm also a professional writer and have worked on a number of projects available on the Storyteller's Vault, along with luminaries from the White Wolf and Onyx Path writing teams. I'm a huge fan of tabletop role-playing games and have been playing Mage for uh, about 20 years now, which sounds way longer than it feels. Uh, Mage is my first love in the tabletop role-playing world, and I can't wait to get into my story with that and how much I love this system in the near future. Fantastic. Well, I am so glad that you've agreed to do this with me. And yeah, hanging out with the longer episodes is going to be great where we can just go back and forth, talk about the lore, esoterica, all of that fun stuff. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me on these. When you first brought up the idea of a podcast, I was very excited. And um, we both have ridiculous schedules. But the idea of just sitting around and talking about Mage with you once or twice a month is always one of my favorite things to do and has been since uh, basically since we became friends. Yeah, I mean, I pretty much fell in love with the system immediately after you showed it to me. So (laughs) it's not hard. She's a beaut. It's really true. So that's actually a great place to start. Let's get into what even is mage what what is it what's the main idea all of this fun stuff mage the ascension is a game about modern magic it's about reality and the people who can adapt that reality to their own belief systems worldviews and paradigms it's a game that takes all manner of mysticism high science mad science and technocratic ludo narratives and crams them all together into one beautifully messy melange that somehow works in spite of itself yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? The idea of being able to just control reality around you. I mean, all all any of us really want is control, right? We want to be able to control our lives and improve our lives and all of this. And Mage kind of gives you the ability to do that, even if it's just through a story. But stories are powerful. Absolutely. And the entire purpose of Mage is that you're playing someone who believes something so strongly that they can affect the world, which I think is one of the reasons why it, it spoke to me so much in my early college years, that it, it kind of reaches out to that part of us that like really believes the world can change and that our, our voice actually has an impact on the world around us. And I think that that's really a core part of what makes Mage so special. Yeah, I agree with that. And kind of hitting that, the slightly 
older bits of mage, which we'll get into the wild world of mage editions in a minute, but that kind of goth punk 90s, like grunge type uh, vibe that it tries to do at least through like second and 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 uh, revised editions that really speaks to those of us just kind of going out into the world and and making the world work for us as best we can well and there was such a there was such a doomy atmosphere when we were playing this in like the late 90s early 2000s like that that period with like I was just getting into role-playing games at the turn of the millennia and going into that whole, you know, what's happening with the world is the world going to end type of vibe that the old world of darkness games had was just so perfect. It was just such a, a picturesque slice of that. And, you know, playing that and, and adapting that goth punk aesthetic of, of world of darkness was just, it was beautiful. It really made these games unique. And then, of course, you got a bunch of stuff that came out after that. You got your Matrix movies. You got um, Equilibrium, uh, the Wanted movie. Oh, God, the Wanted movie. The Wanted movie, yeah. That's, all that stuff is so mage, so euthanatos, so so perfect. And, yeah, a little dated now, but, man, it's, still, it's all so classic. I love it. Yeah. All of those movies, I'm thinking specifically of the Matrix, but those types of movies, um, because they came from that sort of grungy goth punk era, they all shared similar themes and mood. You'd get things like The Matrix and Mage, where you'd have this nihilistic hubris that was kind of the central focus of of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Just what what are you capable of? And Does it matter? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Fighting against a huge monolithic evil. Yeah, exactly. And especially like and a faceless kind of corporate, um, well, a corporate technocracy, right? And it's yeah. it's really interesting to see how those themes have developed too. And we're probably talking talk about that later about how Mage has evolved over the past. I mean, what twenty twenty five years? Ninety three is when the book started coming out. So thirty thirty years. Oh, wow. we're we're apparently starting this por- podcast at the thirty year anniversary of Mage: The Ascension. <laughs> oh, happy birthday, Mage! Happy birthday, Mage! Oh, man. You've gone through some weird stages, but uh, we love you anyway. <laughs> it's really true. The, it's gone through those like awkward teenage phases, just like the rest of us. Honestly, it really does kind of feel that way, right? Because like you look at early editions of Mage and First Ed was very much like wild and imaginative. You do whatever you want and you can, the rules kind of matter, but they kind of don't like you're a kid. Mm-hmm. And then like second edition was like your edgy teenage phase. And then like revised was like your edgy, but also kind of getting tired of your own shit teenage phase, like the yeah. teenage to 20s. And then like M20 is kind of like your 30s or 40s where you're just like, you're just, man, you're just trying. You're just trying <laughs> to make everything work. And you're trying not to be too embarrassed by by some of the mistakes you made along the way. And maybe you have a nine to five now. It's, it's really funny looking at, at the tone in the writing and you get to actually see how the writers as well, because many of them stuck around the mm-hmm. entire run, but how many of them and their, their worldviews stayed very much the same, but the tone has developed as they've progressed through their own life stages too. It's, it's pretty interesting to me. Yeah, it really is. It's like a weird sociological, anthropological study of humanity through the editions of Mage. <laughs> Well, because you got to think like the writers, like 30 years, most of them who were going into this were between like 20 and 30 when they started writing for White Wolf back in the day. And now, you know, these dudes are in their 50s. And that's like, 
that's such a transformative amount of time. Mm-hmm. The major dish in history is uh, I was actually talking to somebody last night about how a little wild um, mage edition history is. I kind of likened it to the mage metaplot where it's just a little wild, a little out there, um, mostly because I was sharing what books I was referencing for the Technocracy Zero Sum game that I run for Dork Tales. And so I'm like, these M20 games, a couple of revised books. I'm like, and I think there's a couple of second edition. And then I looked, I'm like, and this one's first edition, but I still use it. <laughs> Because I use it for stuff like the metaplot and um, and all of that, but and some of the ideas are really good. And uh, mm-hmm. Mage is full of so many ideas that a lot of things that were really just brilliantly outlined in a first edition or a second edition, they never were remade. They were never repurposed or brought forward. Yeah. Because I don't know, maybe people thought that they were fine back there. I still to this day use the second edition Book of Mirrors. Yeah. Because it's a great storytelling guide, and it it has something that is sorely lacking these days, which is a very well-written example of play yeah that's true some of those explanatory i was gonna say documents but you know parts of the book they just aren't rewritten or or aren't brought forward into those newer ones and you have to go all the way back and newer players won't necessarily know that well exactly they won't really get a sense of how you're supposed to go about play because i know there's a constant debate between the type of player that goes and uses uh character names versus themselves in the first person for for role playing it's a completely different vibe mm-hmm. but some people are very robotic they're very almost like third or or like third person limited with the way they're uh yeah so my guy does right like more video gamey in their thing treat it like fiction Exactly. And I think that a lot of modern games, especially like first party, like like big publishers, don't necessarily have those type of examples that are as well defined. A lot of third party games, like a lot of small dev studios, like uh, people doing like Powered by the Apocalypse stuff and like real indie games tend to have a lot more of these. Mm-hmm. And I miss it because this mage used to do it so well. Yeah, they really did. Personally, I tend to bounce back and forth between I and third person. It usually depends on what the people around me are doing. Mm. But every so often I'll be like, oh, yes, I am doing this. And then my brain goes, but you are not the character. And I'm like, but I'm playing the game. <laughs> and I think it, I think that's a very useful tool to be able to switch back and forth, mm-hmm. not, to, not to talk about this too much, but to have that type of narrative distance. The difference between going like, I say this versus like, you know, Josephine shoots him in the head is like, it, it's depending on the action that having that distance can be, you know, helpful. It's true. I'd also say it's it's actually, uh, and this is kind of getting off track, but uh, it's very helpful in those tense moments you find in games where your characters are just, your your character's at odds with another character. Mm-hmm. Like we, we talk about this in episode zeros and stuff where, you know, we check in with each other and we make sure everybody, everybody's cool with certain things. Even if our characters are in a fight, you know, we got to make sure that us, the people, the real people are okay. And being able to swap that distance between I am doing things, I am doing all of these things, this is great, I am controlling the universe, everything's fantastic. And, oh, Josephine is real mad at Evelyn for some reason, and they're, you know, they're fighting. But that's not me. I'm not mad at Christine. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not mad at you. Yeah. And that makes a, that is a big difference. So the, the additions, though. Yeah. I mean, they're all real good. I think it's really funny, too, because you and I did a lot of Mind's Eye Theater LARPing. Yep. Um, and the, the mage book, particularly like Mind's Eye Theater um, Laws of Ascension, and Laws of Ascension Companion have vastly different rules in many ways than they they do in tabletop. 
Um, it's it's much more limited. It's much more strict. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rotes and magic systems that are provided there have very little degrees of flexibility, which, of course, we hack the hell out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by like the second or third LARP event I ran, I completely gutted it and made it the LARP version of that freeform style, right? Yeah. It's not mage otherwise. It's really true. It's really interesting to see what holdovers you have then, because I still have a lot of the you take 10 minutes to cast something and you get an extra grade of success type of thought process in yeah i have that too where you're like oh if you just take longer and larp was my introduction to mage i never did tabletop before that right you got into it afterwards yeah in terms of mage anyway what i love about mage is how universal freeform and clever it allows you to be on dork tales i run a lot of dungeons and dragons because it's really popular and i really do enjoy a fantasy romp i think it's great popcorn right it's not a steak dinner like mage is but man i love popcorn so it's a lot of fun i was just on a forum today where people were like hey what if magic's like baking and you can change all the ingredients around and do all of these little like tweaks and stuff like like what would that be like and i just i you know it took every ounce of willpower to be like you want to play mage i have made this comment so many times where i am trying to mageify D in dragonlance and i'm like hey, hey kelly how clever will you let me be because i want to be clever and my general rule is that i'll allow you to be clever so long as it doesn't like turn someone's blood into ice or something like that like- right yeah Unless you can see into their vein, maybe. All right, that's a different topic. <laughs> it is, but it does allow you to be so creative. And I know that that's not everyone's jam, and that's fair. But as a creative person, I do like being encouraged, not just able, but encouraged to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. I love that. And that's one. Of, that's why you're one of my favorite players. Yeah, and it's why you're one of my favorite players as well as one of my favorite storytellers from Age. It's just it's just because in the last episode, I doped a bunch of people up with a chemically laced dra- uh, llama plushie. Mm-hmm. But who else would think of that, really? I mean, somebody might, but... Maybe. I don't know. I, I love mage. Mage is like the jazz of the tabletop role-playing world. <laughs> but it's so true. Right? That's, that's the most pretentious thing I'm ever going to say. <laughs> it's so freeform and wild. And man, when you get it, you just get it, man. Yeah. And I mean, jazz, uh, like mage, encourages you to break the rules of music, right? So while there are rules in mage, everything about mage is like, fuck the rules, <laughs> right? Exactly. The rules are meant to be broken. And I think that that's, that's a really novel concept for a tabletop role-playing game. And I think that's why people sometimes have difficulty wrapping their head around mage at first is because they're used to having the structure. Because what is a tabletop role-playing game aside from playing make-believe in your backyard and just having rules for it? Well, but if the rules are there, aren't you just playing (laughs) make-believe? It's like, yeah, you are, but that's okay, man. Like, the the point is to think beyond the rules and think to the story and how the rules facilitate that story. And I think Mage is one of those games that enables you to take that step a bit earlier than you realize you're taking it. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I don't know. I've I've always described Mage as postgraduate role-playing. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, yeah, you played, you played D&D. That's your high school game. You, you've played Vampire the Masquerade. That's your college game. You know, maybe you even played some Wraith. You know, Wraith is, uh, Wraith the Oblivion's probably like a Master Levels game. You know, your trauma, your your trauma degree there. Uh, but like after, like, your graduate or post-grad, like, that's mage, man. Yeah. Oh, it just has highfalutin yeah. thinking. It's the, the point in your academia where, yeah, you have the, the really highfalutin thinking. But you also have the, you spent all of this time trudging through your bachelor's and your master's or whatever to get to the point where you you know the rules enough that you can break the rules 
Exactly. I, I think that the hardest thing about playing a running mage, honestly, is the amount of work that a good player and a good storyteller has to put outside of the game. Because for every hour that you're looking through a book, you probably should be spending two hours watching a documentary about witchcraft. Yeah. You know, or, or you know, Hindu practices throughout the eras or um, Celtic mythology or the life of, of Tesla. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, watch the prestige three times and then come back to me. Yeah. Not to, you know, scare off any prospective folk, because I will say M20 has made the rules and mechanics and everything of Mage a lot more entry level for people, I think. They did. They did. Yes, it's a huge book. It's a huge book, but they've written it in a way that makes it a little more entry level. Yeah, it's the the the, the girth of that book is definitely terrifying. Yeah. She thick. She very thick, that book. <laughs> but uh, he he's a big boy. But it's it's definitely a little easier to kind of wrap your head around, which the, the smaller version of the book, like Revised, because both of us like talking about this stuff, like you and I did LARP and we did Revised primarily. So obviously, uh, for those of you who might be listening who are fans of first edition or second edition or M20 primarily, we do have a slight leaning toward Revised just because it, it's like it's like Doctor Who. You, you, you always love your first Doctor. Well, we got started on Revised, so we have a special soft spot for it. But that doesn't mean that we can't understand that, you know, M20, is actually an excellent product it's an excellent book victorian mage like uh, the new version of mage the victorian era is just or mage the victorian age i forget what the actual title is because we use them interchangeably but it's it's a great book i can't wait my copy should be here i'm looking at the dork tales discord and seeing all of the other players get their copies and all of the other oh i'm so mad i want my copy but i live in canada yeah same but yeah that kind of remembering your your first yeah it took me like i'll admit this fully and freely uh because i've admitted this on the discord server it has taken me longer than i'd like to admit really to fully appreciate how m20 put forward paradigm and paradigm and foci or however they're i still i still can't get over that line in m20 about foci because it's latin it's not awkward it's not an awkward plural it's latin i will not let rant about this but <laughs> i just had to get it in there but like instruments and practices and and how it lays out all of that is not as bad as i thought it was on first reading on first reading it seemed confusing and wrong and just yeah it was it mm. wasn't revised and I had to take a closer look at it. Um, Book of Secrets came out and that was great uh, because they really went into it a lot more, which I thought was, I really appreciated. And then I finally understood, ah, yes, it wasn't trying to put me in a box. It wasn't trying to make me claustrophobic. It was just trying to present options for people who didn't necessarily know how to be creative enough to create their own paradigm like Revised expected you to. Yeah, yeah, Revised kind of throws you in the deep end. And I think that some of the, the previous editions did as well. But I mean, I think that, I think one of the thing about the editions that is really interesting as well is the mood and how the mood evolves mm-hmm. through the books. Because I've never played first edition. I've, I've read a lot of first edition stuff, but I didn't get into it till revised. But looking at like the mood of the first, it's it feels very heavy metal in a lot of ways. Like the like the old like heavy metal uh, magazines, heavy metal movie. And then second and third edition, like it gets progressively darker and more weary. And I think it's really interesting looking at the, the way that Mage 20th has been written and all the stuff for M20 is so much more hopeful in a lot of ways. Because the mood for Mage in my mind is that it's it's a war for reality and we're trying to survive against the encroaching forces of commodification of sterilization of sanitation of free ideas 
right? And it's it's this whole struggle to be able to paint in color and draw outside the lines and or to color outside the lines, I should say, and and to do all of this stuff that allows us to be creative individuals in spite of the way that the world is trying to like squash us down. And it's interesting that I'm not sure that mood is carried forward entirely in Dam 20, particularly with they have spent a lot of time humanizing the the technocratic union. So uh, who existed as the primary antagonist. So for those who don't know much about Mage, traditionally, there have been a couple of opposing forces, the nine mystic traditions. So nine organizations that are bound by their intricate belief systems, uh, everything from people who believe that they gain their mystic powers from mystical study, esoterica, summoning demons, to people who use Kung Fu to do magic, to people who pray to, um, to the Christian God, to people who pray to the Norse pantheon or the Greek pantheon uh, to people who do rain dances and things like that. Like each one has a very, very cohesive mystical methodology, some of which are scientific, like reality hackers and mad scientists. And then on the opposite side, you have the forces of stasis, of reality, of the current reality that we live in, the technocratic union, which are our G-men and Umbrella Corp and Skynet and, you know, space exploration and all of that stuff um but their entire goal in this this war called the ascension war is all about trying to assert a unified paradigm over reality uh in the technocratic union's case at least to sterilize reality into something that is safe for the masses so that one day everyone can can awaken and become a will worker as well uh whereas the the traditions are largely trying to shatter that for the exact same goal right to make a world where where you don't have to conform to have this but in doing so that could be much more dangerous and it's an interesting thing because the technocratic union was always, you know, they were the men in black. They were, they were the terminators, mm-hmm. which I love. I love me a good technocratic villain, but it's also kind of interesting to take that. And in like M20, they kind of flipped it on its head. And now it's much more like, yeah, you're the man, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily a bad person. Yeah. They made the technocracy human. And I really enjoy that outlook because technocrats aren't technocrats because they love evil and want to be the bad guys Mm. they just have a belief system that aligns with the technocracy and they're trying to do their best like the rest of us Mm -hmm. you're just trying to get by and i think it's it's fun because the organizations themselves are fairly corrupt and it's the idea of like the is the organization the problem is the person the problem i don't know there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff you can dive into this yeah yeah so, favorite tradition, convention, disparate group. What's yours? Oh man, what do you got? Uh, the hollow ones, probably. Um, I love me some <laughs> some fancy goth people. God, I just I love the hollow ones a, a lot, a lot, a lot. If I had to pick something that wasn't the hollow ones, so uh, the hollow ones are not a tradition for those who are uninitiated. They are they are basically like the the goth <laughs> theater kids at the edge of the traditions who were like you guys didn't invite us to the party so we're gonna make our own tradition with black candles and and clove cigarettes we didn't want to be invited anyway yeah it's it's basically lydia deets from beetlejuice as her own tradition 
but they're wonderful and their whole paradigm is just about passion and getting into it you know uh but if i had to pick inside ooh, that's a tough one i i love all of them very very much i would probably say uh, i will change my mind later maybe the cult of ecstasy they're they're a group my first character that i ever played was i remember the cult of ecstasy which is real ironic because i personally don't do many of the things that the cult of ecstasy does but i really like the idea of using sensory input and substances and practices that alter your perceptions as ways of doing magic Mm -hmm. i think that's real cool plus you get a great soundtrack this is true. This is really true. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, great belief system. What about you? Yeah, I also I also love the Hollow Ones. It's part exactly as you described it. They're just they're just so much fun. But it, the other part is, you know, you love your first kind of thing. Yeah. That was one of the easier paradigms to get my head into, uh, you know, when I'm what, nineteen and LARPing for the first time kind of thing. <laughs> Yep, yep. Dyeing your hair blue, wearing all the black clothes you own at the same time. Yeah, maybe not all of them. I owned a lot of black clothes. <laughs> yeah, you had a lot of black clothes back then. <laughs> I have a lot of black clothes now. <laughs> so so what's your favorite tradition then? Because you're playing a member of the Order of Hermes right now. Yes, and personally, I think I, as a real-life human being, fall into the Order of Hermes. So while I want to say that's my favorite, it's also like, but that's also my life. Fair. For those who haven't heard me talk about this in the past or who haven't watched Victorian era actual play. Which you should be watching it. It's true. You should be. But I dabble in alchemy and um, like pre-1600s stuff. One of my many, many hobbies. The Order of Hermes is kind of your traditional wizard. I'm going to use wizard because that's what they are. It's very point a wand and make a fireball sort of stuff. You There's a lot of nuance in there. And that's another thing I love about the Order of Hermes is all of the nuance within the one tradition. I think my favorite outside of Order of Hermes is uh, the Thanatos. Yeah, the Thanatos or, or Chakravanti in the in the newer editions. Man, it's hard not to dislike them. They're a bunch of of serial killers and and like basically the cancer nurses of reality. They're just they're an interesting concept, and um, it, it's been interesting to see them develop because I imagine that shows like like Dexter could have really watered the concepts down over time too. Because they, they basically kill people to keep reality, to keep the, the wheel of fate spinning and not getting weighed down by bad karma. So they, you know, let people check out early, like, you know, serial killers and offenders of various spread. People who are damaging reality, but from the other side of the technocracy, kind of, because technocracy sometimes does that too, but... Exactly. Favorite type of technocrat? Void engineer, 100%. Man, I gotta say, out of all of them, I love the NWO, but the Syndicate's the best. The moment the moment that you can be like, I will write you a check for $5,000 if you shoot this guy in the head right now. But it's my brother. Okay, 7000 bang. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the idea that my, like I could be bulletproof because I pay $10,000 a week for a personal trainer. I love that. It's so vapid. It's so mind-blowingly accurate to the way that most of us see the world, even unconsciously. Yeah. You know, like, oh, of course this works better. It costs more. Mm -hmm. Like, who doesn't go to a grocery store and look at the two types of detergent that have the exact same ingredients and go, well, that one costs more and has a name brand, so it must be better. Right. That's a, it's a hard thing to unlearn, guys, but it's just, just, just going to tell you, don't get name brands. Yeah. I have to admit that. In that one shot you ran for extra life the other the other year, 
however long ago that was now, where I played a member of the syndicate and basically just won at the end by saying that I owned the gun they were trying to shoot me with. <laughs> so good. It's so good. It was it was pretty fun. It's, yeah. It's, it's so good. I mean, I also love the NWO just because you got your classic Men in Black, but there's so much more nuance. Yeah, and there's something about LARPing a Man in Black, like getting the black suit. If you manage to get one of the earpieces, even better. The sunglasses. Yeah, so, oh, so good. The aesthetic is top-notch. It sends me. So, yeah, those those are my favorites. As for the disparates, like like all of like the, or crafts as they were known in previous editions, I mean, mm-hmm. I love the Knights Templar. They're They're nuts. They're literally just blowing themselves up to get at people. I do I do like them a lot. Yeah. I don't actually know a lot about the disparates. Um like they were never something they were they were rare uh when when we were playing a lot. Well, in, in revised they got absorbed into other traditions, right? For the most part. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, might be something I have to learn more about. You should. Uh, cuz I know there's chapters of in M20, so <laughs> Well, and the Disparate Alliance is very interesting because a lot of it is designed to be kind of a reactionary, anti-colonial type of vibe, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it consists of a lot of people who are, a lot of mages who are outside of the traditional kind of colonialist landscape of groups like the Order of Hermes or groups like the um, the Celestial Chorus who can often be seen as very, very colonizing forces. The Disparate Alliance is mm-hmm. is much more indigenous. It's much more, more person of color focused. So it is very interesting and i think everybody should read about mm-hmm. it but it's it's also often working with concepts that might not be familiar to to mainstream north american role players because you know it's not it's not the right. dominant cultural narrative so it, read them check them out some of them are pretty cool there's um i know there's at least one that that's very polynesian in origin and it's okay. really i don't know it's it's interesting that we don't know much about that considering that like i'm american personally even though i live in canada and you know I have family that lives in Hawaii or lived in Hawaii, and I still don't know any of these these things. You know, I should really get I should really get to reading. I need to read more. Yeah, yeah, I'm, me too, honestly. Yep. But you know, we we read these game books over and over again, looking for plots and ideas and stuff. And actually, along those lines, and this is definitely definitely something for a later episode where we really get into it. But this idea of a meta plot. Because there are so many people who rail against it or love it and a couple of people who are kind of okay in the middle, but just the pros and cons of having a meta plot in a TTRPG. For me personally, I love a place I can grab ideas from. I love that you don't have to use it. One of the arguments I see is that, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I have to use the meta plot. So I have to do all of this research through hundreds of books just to get an idea of what the meta plot is. And I'm like, no, you don't, you don't have to use it. You don't have to use any of it. Well, we were at dinner the other night and mm-hmm. we had a bunch of World of Darkness players at the table. You actually were at the opposite end mm-hmm. of this conversation. And uh, our, our friend Jordan, who's a big World of Darkness fan as well, was talking. He kept asking me like what my favorite game was. And I said, oh, it's Mage, obviously. And he's like, yeah, I really like Demon the Fallen, but I'll never run it because of the meta plot. And it's, it's that type of sense that like so many people look at the meta plot. So there's this big spanning plot that exists inside of the game. And they look at it and say, well... If I run it, I have to run it exactly this way. But if I don't run it, players are going to ask for it. So I feel like the players are either going to be second fiddle to the meta plot or they're going to be upset that they didn't Mm -hmm. get it. And I think that that is a really 
It's a really black and white way of looking at it. And also, I think metaplots are really cool. I love metaplots. I love being able to pull in elements and, of course, twist them. It's your yeah. world, guys. Like, change whatever you want. When when I was running Mage um, as a live-action game, I brought in the entirety of the the Ascension, like the, um, the final book in the Mage, the Ascension line for Revised before it was revived for M20. It had four different endings for the World of Darkness based on Mage. I used all mm-hmm. four. I put them in a blender and put it on puree and took my favorite bits of every little bit. And and I think that the, the thing about metaplots that people really miss out on is that they think, oh, well, if I've got this big overarching story that has like, oh, and then these guys do this and this guy does this and he's super cool, you know, and they're forgetting that the characters at the table are still the protagonists. Mm-hmm. And they should still, like, even if you're dealing with, like, ah, yes, this archmage uh, is trying to destroy reality, your players are going to be the ones that take him down, bro. Your players have to have that conflict. Or, you know, in in vampires, it's like, oh, the antediluvians rise up. These ancient vampires that have been around since biblical times uh, rise up and they destroy the world and you're just a puny vampire. Okay, well, but what makes this story personal and interesting Mm -hmm inside of that framework you know that's like saying that people who say that you can't you have to do it exactly this way and that it alienates the players how would they run a historical game for example say you're one to set something in pompeii that doesn't mean that your character is any less important it just means that you know what's mm-hmm. happening and that you can play into those strengths especially if a player knows what's going to happen because of metaplot because they played it before for example i could i i would be not very surprised playing most pre-written modules or anything involving the metaplot anymore for for several world of darkness game lines but it never plays quite the same mm-hmm. way and it's kind of good sitting at the table going oh I know what's coming. It's like the first times that somebody like watches the 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 Red Wedding mm-hmm. or reads that portion of uh, Game of Thrones. It's like, oh, check in with me afterwards. I'd like to see how you enjoy the wedding. The dresses were very nice. Right. And I mean, personally, it makes me so excited to have you as a player in technocracy because I have pulled bits of the meta plot for you personally. And I just watch you on screen and go, do you get it? Do you get it yet? <laughs> Was in, in an episode, uh, I don't know how much there was in, in episode one, but in the pilot episode, like immediately you were like, oh yeah, there was special project division. And I'm like, how, how much does my character know about special project division? You're like, enough. And I'm like, okay, that's all I need to know to know that it is time to get out of here right now. Right? Yeah, exactly. You've heard rumors. I think, I think it's what you said. I think you said you've heard things. Nothing's confirmed. And I'm like, well... Well, they just blinked black supernatural eyes and I am not a Winchester, so it is time to run. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I will say to avoid spoilers for both you and for uh, anyone listening Mm -hmm. to this, there definitely were a couple of aspects in in episode one, but they were very minimal. I have no idea what's going on, man. Like Nolan's just trying to survive. Yeah, good. Good. Good, good. I'm sure it'll make more sense next episode. I'm sure it's a forest for the trees thing. But that's the thing, though. If you're dropping metaplot details in, have fun with it. Like, really do. And I think that's one of the things that is really interesting, because there are a lot of metaplot details that people really love or really hate. Like, for example, in Mage the Ascension, the Avatar Storm. Mm -hmm. People hate the Avatar Storm. Or they love it. I personally love it because what what it is basically is there are a bunch a bunch of things happened and part of the underworld got blown up 
and uh, and then all these shards went you know whipping around the world and there's this barrier around our layer of reality now so if you decide to go to you know do a beer run out to the spirit realms you have to go through this uh you know broken glass yeah you have to go through a a fence made of broken glass that cuts your soul up and the reason for this from a uh, an internal game developer stance is that whenever you were up against something a, a mage could just use spirit magic and go and pop across and they'd be out of trouble you know oh look time to hop across the gauntlet into the spirit world avoid these mall cops and then go rob a bank Mm -hmm. i i like that i like that it makes the journey a bit more dangerous and a bit more a bit more of a spectacle Mm -hmm. especially because when you know you're going into the spirit world it gives your storyteller a bit more time to prep weird shit for you which is always very welcome this is true. But I really like it. But I also can see why people wouldn't like it because it is limiting. And it, you know, well, the, the bank robbing example, if your storyteller is getting annoyed that you're robbing banks of spirit magic, well, why why not just nerf correspondence? Why, yeah. why pick on spirit? I think that's why M20 has a really good way of doing the updates to the Metaplot. What, what they've done is they have all these sidebars that are basically three options they give you. One is, hey, the Metaplot happened. The other is the meta plot kind of happened, but, you know, things have gotten better or maybe it didn't happen quite this way. And then the third is usually some like, or it didn't happen at all. Whatever. I don't care. I'm a, I'm a role playing game, not a cop. Right. And you can choose what you want to do. So if you want to run a game where you don't use the meta plot at all, you don't have the Avatar Storm. Great. Good. Go do it. Or you can have the Avatar Storm, or you could have it a lesser version of what it was when it first appeared. And maybe it causes you know, less damage or whatever, right? You you are the creator of the world and you can use whatever pieces they have given us to play with. But I imagine like going into it as a new storyteller, it can be a little daunting, but I wouldn't worry about it too much. Like just, you know, meta NPCs, Mm. like bringing in the big world NPCs, it's pretty cool to be able to pull up a picture from the book and be like, hey, you know that that, um, Cult of Ecstasy art? on the cult of ecstasy tradition chapter or the tradition section Mm -hmm. uh yeah she shows up because that's that's something that's really eye-opening when you're flipping through the books because so many role-playing games you look at it you're like oh there's some cool art there but in in world of darkness books you're flipping through every single piece of art is especially like when it's divided into like a tradition or a vampire clan or a werewolf tribe that's a character from the plot that they've stuck in there as a representation And that's real cool. You don't get that with a lot of game lines. It's true. It's true. You really don't. I like using them when when it's useful and mm-hmm. where it's not going to overshadow the players. It's going to give them that that moment of, oh, oh, this person, rather than any sort of, oh, great. Now, you know, Deus Ex Machina is here to save the day, right? Because you don't want that. Exactly. But then again, who who doesn't like you to have a conversation and, you know, the, the mysterious foreign accented man turns around as you're, you know, settling up your bar tab. And you're like, hey, man, what was your name, by the way? Yes, it was Vikos. Sasha Vikos. <laughs> and he just like turns into a puddle of blood and goes down a drain. And you're like, what the balls? You know, it's true. It's true. It's great to realize you're talking to a like game celebrity. But yeah, having those moments, especially when like to go back to Victorian age for a minute when there's all these people who because they're mages and have life magic and can do whatever they want and possibly live for hundreds of years a lot of the known npcs meta npcs are 
ones that were alive in the Victorian era. And so, you know, use them because it's fun to, to be like, oh, that's, oh, that's, that's a person. Um, I, I didn't realize I was talking to that person. Um, but that's cool. <laughs> they could, they could smite me. <laughs> You've had conversations with Porthos Fitz Empress, the, the, one of the big NPCs from the um, Order of Hermes. But you've also hung out and, and done drugs with um, Oscar Wilde. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So, you know, I, I like to, I like to dip in, in several different fondue pots. I don't know. What do you dip in, Jen? Put, put, Fond- put in what you fondue dip in. Fondue pots is, is good. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I like to draw from, from different streams. That segues kind of neatly into one of the last big topics I kind of want to talk about. But this idea of like you have the world of darkness and then you have the Chronicles of Darkness, which is a lot more friendly to like crossing the splats, basically, where you're taking, you know, vampires and you're putting them into a mage game or anything like that. And also while we're here, like thoughts on Ascension versus Awakening. But, you know, that's kind of where I'm, I'm going with this is talking about uh, the crossing the splats. Okay, so here's the deal. You're absolutely right. Chronicles of Darkness, so like the New World of Darkness, as it was formerly called, is is much better at mixing splats. You can have a game where a werewolf is best friends with a mage, and they live with a changeling, and also this guy who has a ghost attached to him, and they all go out and adventure and solve crimes in a van, okay? Like, you can absolutely have that. All the powers are really, really swappable. Um, the game balance with the exception of that ghost dude, because he's totally OP, even though you wouldn't expect him to be. Um, but like the, the, the first three, yeah, they, they pretty much work fairly harmoniously. That's not the way that the real world works. Not even, not to say that this is, should even remotely resemble the real world, but game balance is a lie. And anybody who tells you something mm-hmm. different is trying to sell you something is, is my opinion. And if you want to play a game where those people pal around, the Chronicles of Darkness is great for that. But let, let's be honest, uh, werewolves and wizards should work differently than each other. Yeah. Yeah. I would probably say if you want your PCs to all be different splats, use Chronicles. If your NPCs are different splats that are coming into a particular game, then do whatever you want, really. But yeah, it makes sense to me that they're not as balanced as you know Chronicles makes them. And I think about Chronicles of Darkness that uh, especially some of the more recent, like the second edition stuff that actually has kind of bugged me is that every one of the different types of creature has gotten a inflict condition ability. And it just it feels real cookie cutter in in that way. Um, I really like the game lines and I've written a bunch of stuff for Vampire the Requiem that's available for sale right now on the on um, on the Storyteller's Vault. But looking that that vampires can you know hit you with a condition that makes you act a certain way but mages can do it too but werewolves can do it too but i'm pretty sure changelings can do it too i haven't really looked through second edition changeling very much it just feels like they're they're really similar they're really samey yeah it's different flavors of the same cookie basically exactly and i love cookies but man like old world of darkness for for all its flaws and merits has so much differentiation it's really more of a buffet mm-hmm. than like just different rack on the cookie shelf and the some of the food's not as fresh and <laughs> you know i have i have things in chronicles that i vastly prefer i really think that a lot of the stuff involving werewolves is way better in chronicles just thematically i love the um uh the death rage mechanics in second edition werewolf i think they're phenomenal mm-hmm. because i love me a werewolf werewolves are one of my favorite things in all of fiction 
and I love them. And I love the idea of them going nuts and being unstoppable killing machines who have to deal with it afterwards. Yeah. I, I'm less fond of Werewolf the Apocalypse, where you can stay in your werewolf form and go, you know, lay around on the couch playing Sudoku in your werewolf form. You know, like, it's a little, little, I don't know. Yeah. But the, the big difference between Mage the Ascension and Mage the Awakening is that Mage the Awakening is a fine game, particularly in second edition. They really got to the core of what it is. And it feels, oh, I'm going to piss some people in the tabletop actual play community off that i know sorry about this occultist anonymous but it's mage the ascension with the edges filed off because like it's an investigative adventure game in many ways it also with touches of horror and things like that and there are a lot of things in mage the awakening that are really cool i love the abyss i love some of the abyssal intrusions i think they're i i would steal those and put them in ascension absolutely but i i think that it's the difference between i don't know will working and and wizardry yeah the Mage of the Awakening feels a lot more like Doctor Strange. Yeah. Or Atlantis. You know, no no joke intended. It feels like the movie Atlantis in a lot of ways. That's fair, yeah. I think when I first was looking at Awakening, it felt very akin to Order of Hermes the book, right? Yeah, but like a little broader than that, so you don't feel quite right saying it. Yeah. It's like Order of Hermes, but with different hats. Yes, and it had that wizard wizard vibe the aesthetic yeah it totally has the wizard aesthetic but with like a little touch of eastern mysticism and uh, like the, the the doctor strange thing is pretty accurate when you think of all the glyphs and like all of that oh it's really true and the difference between ascension and awakening is just awakening is about finding magic and uncovering secrets and mysteries of magic and that's rad but ascension is about realizing that you and the rest of humanity are really magic the magic is inside you the whole time in one of the games, you know? Yeah. Nobody gave you magic. I guess that's one of the things, though, is that in Awakening, you sign your name to the Watchtower to awaken, and it's almost like someone's giving you magic. Mm -hmm. Whereas you're you're finding it for yourself in Ascension, more or less. I don't know. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with that. The um, Awakening definitely feels, it has that outward focus, right? Whereas Ascension is is very much internally focused. And um, as somebody who plays TTRPGs for the catharsis and the, the trauma resolutions and all of this good stuff, I'm much more inclined to choose the internal focused one because that's where I find the most interesting conflicts in my own brain. Exactly. And if you to, to take the Doctor Strange metaphor a step further, it's Doctor Strange versus uh, As Ascension is the X-Men. Much more similarly, right? And that's the vibe that I read into it. It's like, oh, you had powers that awakened suddenly and you don't know what to do with them. And you're trying to figure out what's going on. You probably got big robot guys chasing you. And, you know, and there's, yeah, it's. Maybe you should join up with others to be safe. <laughs> you know, and it's it's all kind of this meta commentary on belief and about identity. And, you know, a lot of that identity is marginalized. A lot of that identity is marginalized or queer. There's a lot of that undercurrent in Ascension that is really cool to draw upon. Even if you may not be a member of one of those communities, you can still relate to that. If you play a tabletop role-playing game, I'm going to assume that at some point in your life, you have felt like you are not the most popular kid in class. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> At least once or twice, right? Because these these are, um, as artistic as you can make them, they're escapist fantasies. And there's nothing wrong with that. We all need that, man. Like, it's why these games exist. 
That's why I think that's why we're alive. Personally, yeah. I think it's to explore things that are greater than ourselves. And I think that Mage: The Ascension is one of those rare games that gives you a chance to explore elements of reality that are far beyond yourself from the comfort of your own home and help you realize the fact that just because something isn't factual, just because something isn't real, doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. I don't know. That's just me. That's just me being pretentious. <laughs> because what else is Mage the Ascension if not pretentious? It's really true. It is a very pretentious, jazzy game, but I love it. I still love it. It's the best of them. Um, yeah, so that kind of leads us to, do you have any advice for running a mage game? Um, I have some of my own, but I'd like to hear yours. Uh, definitely listen to Jen's episode on spheres and uh, and how to use them because spheres can be very intimidating to new storytellers. I, and they're really not as complex as you want to think they are. The number one thing I could say about spheres in advance of that episode is a reminder that a pattern is not uh, usually able to be violated except in very specific ways. Like you can't just turn someone's blood into acid with life magic you would require additional steps if you want to turn your own blood to acid that's one thing <laughs> yeah totally totally do it do it what kind of acid that's your business cult of ecstasy go just turn turn your blood into just lsd just just <laughs> oof <laughs> so um i would say draw from as much external material as possible watch a ton of movies check every mage book that you have access to for their suggested reading and viewing and expose yourself to it. I mean, most of it is on streaming platforms for maybe not free, but you know, you can get a hold of them on streaming platforms. You don't have to pay like rental fees anymore. So go do that. Read, explore. The beautiful thing about Mage over so many other games is that anything can be a Mage game. Not everything can be a vampire game, I would say, for yeah. inspiration. Like you can go watch a romantic comedy. And we used to do this <laughs> game in college where we would watch a movie and be like, oh, that's so Mage. Well, that's a, he's, you know, you draw, you, that thing that obsessive fan people do like us, where we go like, oh yeah, Tom Hanks in Big is totally just, you know, he's just a cultist who has accidentally stumbled into this paradox effect yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, now I'm thinking about Big. Oh man. But the, I guess the first thing you should do if you're going to run Mage is just breathe. Really get a sense of things and remember that the best part about mage is that you are exploring what it means for these characters to have magic and to be human and have small things happen don't only focus on big things because your character is going to feel much more human if you if you focus on the little details i would also probably add to that well, in terms of, of watching things and, and reading things and just exposing yourself to different types of stories and different ways of telling stories, the uh, I was told about this through our Discord, but the show 1899 mm -hmm. on Netflix is a made show and I've only seen one episode and I keep wanting to go back, but I, I, I have to like make time where I can focus on it because it is required that you focus on it, at least for me, because I can see all the bits. I went into that show being like, this is, I've been told this is a made show. Uh, it's probably a made show. And the first glimpse of the title screen, and I can't remember how long into the episode that comes up, but first glimpse of the title screen, I look at it and I go, is that the alchemical symbol for water? And then I'm like, okay, I'm like, I got to check. I got to check. It was the alchemical symbol for earth. So I was close. And then I kept seeing it everywhere. They're, they're very sim similar symbols. They are. Symbols. They're both triangles. It's just orientation yeah. and a line. That's it. Same with air and fire. 
they're all triangles. They just some of them have lines and some of them don't. Anyway, that mm. that show, Nerd. the first episode was really good. It ended on a note where I'm like, this is a mage show. I need to watch more. Anyway, the other thing I would probably suggest is it's it's the classic DMing storytelling note of or really more the improv note of don't say no necessarily and I'm going to amend that because most of the time it's you know say say yes and or say yes but or say yes basically it's just don't completely shut down things in mage I'd say aim more for the the you could do that but maybe this is better or say no but gently like don't completely shut them down I don't think you can do that with your spheres, but you could do something kind of yeah. similar. Is you can it's you can kind of guide them into into doing it right in a lot of ways. Like I think what you're trying to do is find out if he's lying. So you could do that with life magic by trying to like detect his blood pressure and yeah. his like that, but you don't really have any life magic. Like you got like one point. I guess you could maybe do that, but like You've also got mind magic and entropy magic. Like you could do that through the idea that you're monitoring his body language, but it doesn't have to be that maybe, you know? Yeah. And, and leaning into that creative and knowing that the practice or how somebody does something doesn't necessarily correlate exactly to the sphere. So you could do things like meditation for a sphere that isn't mind or life necessarily right you could do meditation for time if you wanted or something like that and just kind of lean into that that creative aspect and just kind of go with the flow don't don't try and pigeonhole people i have ideas for plots and i go i really hope that they get to this point but i have four players and some of them are chaotic so let's see what happens (laughs) right Mm -hmm. right that's part of the fun it is it is part of the fun with mage you never know what someone's gonna do I got I yeah so that I guess my my three my three big ones breathe uh have supporting cast that isn't all supernatural because then it really gets watered down um and uh ask your players what they want and listen listening is good yeah speaking of listening I think we'll leave it there for today and thank all of you for listening to us talk about mage which is one of my absolute favorite things to do with you Kelly and thank you for being here with me Um, Hey, thanks for having me on, Jen. I really did appreciate it, and I really did enjoy myself here. Uh, Folks, if you liked what we talked about, I would definitely suggest you check out Dork Tales and the various chronicles that we're talking about here. There's a Mage the Ascension Chronicle set in the Victorian Age that is absolutely wonderful. There is another one that we ran in conjunction with Onyx Path for one of their Kickstarters called Breaking Tradition, which is a little five-episode short run. These are all available on YouTube right now at youtube.com slash dorktales, and I hope to see you there. You can also check out some of my writing on the Storyteller's Vault and um, most of it is for Vampire the Requiem, but there is some really cool stuff coming out in the near future for other systems, and uh, I think you'll like it. It's pretty good stuff. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. Of course, anytime. Um, I am bringing you back for all of the the big talks, for sure. Excellent. I am happy to be your, your one-point mentor. <laughs> it's really true. You've been listening to Paradox, a Mage the Ascension podcast, And you can find us wherever you can find podcasts. If actual plays are up your alley, check out Dorktales on twitch.tv slash dorktales or youtube.com slash dorktales or find us on the Dorktales Discord server. We are currently streaming a Mage the Victorian era game on Saturdays. 
Our Patreon subscribers have early access to the new Technocracy Zero Sum game, which I run on the first Sunday of the month, and we have several major one-shots and a short-run chronicle called Breaking Tradition on YouTube, plus all of our other amazing content. Thanks for listening, and remember to always keep your magic coincidental, unless it's Fireball. Thank you.